Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. It is my honor and delight to have again as my guest, Dr. Thomas Bandy. Tom is the author of over 25 books and is an internationally sought-after consultant and speaker. Throughout his ministry, Tom has been in the service of churches and their leaders by providing understanding, penetrating insight, guidance, wisdom, and resources that have enabled churches around the world to minister more truly from who they are to the context in which they are located. His wisdom is prophetic, and this has been a vital help. When he was on this show before, Tom was part of a panel in which we discussed alternative lectionaries. Before agreeing to be on the show, Tom did note that since he had published his own alternative lectionary, his work had moved toward demographics and lifestyle expectations, with the focus upon adaptive ministries in the midst of cultural diversity. He has graciously agreed to return to the show to talk more fully about this focus and the implications it has for the context in which churches in the United States are doing ministry. Well, welcome, Tom. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, David. I appreciate the invitation again. Um, so you had spoken about that uh, a major shift uh, for you and your work had been with um, kind of discovering uh, the importance of demographic research. Uh, so talk about how that, that shift occurred for you, how that move occurred, uh, and then what you understand uh, has developed from that. Well, um, uh, a big shift in thinking for me, um, and I'm not sure how much, how really aware of it I was at the time. In 2006, uh, by coincidence, uh, I had three books come out at the same time, which, and it's kind of telling to see the, what those books were about. The first one was the Uncommon Lectionary book, which we talked about in our last interview. Um, but then the second one was called Why Should I Believe You? And it was a book on uh, the declining credibility of clergy and what to do about it. And the third book was actually very different, positioned for a larger market, uh, spirituality market called Global Positioning for the Soul. And around that same time, I was uh, on my second speaking tour in Australia. And again, once again, exposed to a, a very different culture and environment. Uh, then shortly after that, um, I remember the meeting very well. Uh, we were in a, a hotel meeting room in Houston, and I was meeting with some of the people that originated the, 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 the new search engine, missioninsight.com, and they introduced me for the first time to lifestyle research and this, this, this emerging tool of clustering and gathering digital data uh, and creating, you might say, lifestyle portraits based on the behavior patterns of, of groups of people. And um, major companies, multinationals like Experian and other companies uh, do this kind of data collection. And uh, Experian now defines 71 distinct lifestyle segments in America in 19 different groups, uh, all of them with kind of a different behavior pattern. And without going into detail about what that's about, my immediate reaction on hearing that was I was, I was, I was stunned. Immediately, I, I saw 
how this data, primarily aimed at the secular world, it's used by social services and corporations and retailers and, and so on, but, but how it also would help churches as they began to think of uh, adaptive ministries. Uh, and it, it helped me understand why certain people gravitated to certain churches or certain worship services and so on. And, and the, so the connection I was making was uh, recognition of lifestyle diversity as, as probably one of the most significant facts of the emerging 21st century. Uh, how that impacted adaptive ministries uh, for churches of all kinds. But going even deeper than that, how it helped uncover the motivations for religion, the motivations for spirituality. Why, you know, what drives certain kinds of people in their quest for God and, and realizing that that's diverse. And then, and then the last connection was around spiritual leadership. Why is it that, that certain lifestyle segments seem to gravitate to certain kinds of spiritual leaders or clergy or whatever, rather than others? And so um, there, there, there was a way of seeing patterns, it, I felt, uh, around what uh, brought people all to the church or to Christ, and also what might drive people away from the church or to become more alienated from Christianity. And those patterns could be tracked and rooted in lifestyle research. So it made a huge difference. I was already in the church growth world talking about, you know, adapting ministries, different kinds of worship, different styles of worship, different kinds of hospitality, Christian education, small group affinities, um, even, you know, how, how churches facilities are different or renovated different or used to different technologies and all these different things. And, and lifestyle research um, is what really put all the flesh on that, on those bones. And uh, it was very exciting to me to begin a, a whole new way of understanding uh, what Christianity, what religion uh, is like and how it's unfolding in America today. Well, you speak of as a result of uh, what you learned uh, that the church is now sidelined. Uh, why is that? Well, my um, I, I wrote five books in a row on this uh, lifestyle segment application for ministry. And uh, the last one was called Sideline Church. And uh, uh, what I'm what I'm trying to address is how uh, how and why the church in all its manifestations and all its traditions, whether it's evangelical or mainstream, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Pentecostal, but but the church is uh, has been gradually being marginalized in American society, less influential in American society, and um, uh, although different churches and denominations make, make claims about their growth and whatever, uh, the, the real data that's being collected shows how this um, uh, the shift uh, away from the church and away from the influence, you might say, of the church is happening in America. Now, some people describe that as secularism, and, and they would say, well, that's just when hap that's what's been happening in Western 
civilization. It's been in Europe, it was in England, it's in Australia, it's happening in the United States and Canada. Um, but I, I think it's not just about secularism, it's about a whole new way or, or a whole uh, complexity of, of spirituality that we really are not living into, you might say, a godless atheistic world, but we are really living into a very spiritualized world, but one in which people are going in all different directions, uh, some of them very profound, some of them maybe shallow, but all different directions in their quest for God. And, and in that process, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, which I can, I can go into a little bit further, I think the church is increasingly on the sidelines of, of what's going on, you might say, socially, economically, uh, psychologically, religiously, uh, corporately, and so on in America today. Uh, and, and that's what this book is about. It's about exploring um, uh, kind of different, different groupings of society and how they do or do not connect with the church and, and, and to some extent what we can do about it. Well, you, I mean, cause to kind of build on what you were saying, folks think we're living in a secular age, but you, you kind of took it beyond that to say that we're living in a pagan age that we've moved from Christendom through secular into pagan. Yeah. And I, and I, and by the way, um, in my public speaking, I've something I've sometimes gotten pushback around the word pagan from pagans. <laughs> Yeah. who feel that I'm, I'm kind of uh, um, dissing or, or disrespecting their spirituality. And I'm not trying to do that. Right. What I am trying to say is that we are kind of reliving again the pre-Christian world, a Christian world or a, a world in which there are many religions and, and many gods and spiritualities, which can be meaningful in various ways to many people. But that is the kind of diversity spiritually we're living in. And and my shorthand would be to talk that talk about that as a kind of emerging uh, pagan world. Well, my understanding of what you had said was because I've you know I've interviewed a, a high priestess, a Wiccan high priestess, and um, and and uh, you know there's a large uh, pagan community in the Asheville, North Carolina area, and and my understanding is that. Uh, as you talked about a little bit, is it's it's kind of a, a rejection of atheism. It's not it's not moving into atheism, but it's it's the reawakening and embracing of um, indigenous faiths, indigenous uh, perspectives, uh, and and uh, and so you know uh, in, in that way their their chosen term of pagan uh, being how I took it. Uh, um, and I like to, um, where I tend to go with that um, complexity of spirituality in the world is to be in talking about the phenomenon which is often called personal religion. Uh, and personal religion or the personalization of religion, or you might say the customization of religion around myself, around my, my ego, my lifestyle, my needs, and so on borrowing from different religions perhaps or different sacred texts or or whatever i'm doing but it, it, it to me it's really that that trend to the personal religion or the personalization of religion which is the major christian movement if you could call it or major religious movement if i could even 
call it a movement. Uh, it's a phenomenon uh, happening in America today. Uh, and, and we see that both outside the church and within the church, I think, David. Because when I talk to church members of all different traditions and denominations and, and begin to talk with them more serious about you know, what do they really believe and, 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 and what are the norms that they value in behavior and, and so on, what I begin to see is that even in the church membership, they are personalizing their religion. They are being selective about certain things from their heritage and tradition and blending it with other traditions and so on. And, um, and even this means that there's a, a sidelining, you might say, that the relevance of denominations and classic institutional religion, it's losing influence even on their own memberships, not to mention the rest of society. And, and we see this shift, uh, not just uh, uh, a way, you might say, uh, a shift not just to be indifferent to the church, but actually to begin to leave or distance yourself from the church, even though you're thinking of yourself as Christian. And a lot of it has to do with all this personalization of religion. Well, in, in, in your book, uh, you talk about kind of um, bringing an update uh, to the work of, um, is it Adrian Mitchell and, and uh, text sample? Uh -huh. And yeah, the, the, these were authors who were pioneers, I think, in um, talking about demographics and it's significant for religion in America and their writings uh, mainly in the 90s. Uh, and uh, what I wanted to do, I was asked by my editor if I would do this um, because the digital revolution and the emergence of lifestyle portraiture um, uh, added a whole new layer of detail, you might say, into the study of demographics and religion. And so um, in the 90s, um, people tended to talk about uh, the cultural left, the cultural right, and the cultural middle, just kind of three broad groups of people, um, and not with a lot of clarity around their different lifestyles. And at that time, we had no idea that there were so many different lifestyle groups and so on as we began to uncover. So what I did in building on their work is expanded those categories to five. And um, you might say there were two left of center, two right of center, and one in the middle. So, so there's the left, the cultural left, I kind of redefined as the culturally ambivalent. Uh, these were people who are uh, in terms of their attitude to religion, uh, fairly ambivalent, uh, have a lot of doubts, a lot of questions, uh, a lot of uncertainties, resisting dogmas, and so on. And then there's a, a more radical side to the cultural left, which I call the, uh, for lack of any better words, uh, a liberal cultural eclectic. Uh, very, fairly extremely liberal, um, uh, very multicultural, and but also very eclectic, very diverse in terms of their preferences and choices and attitudes toward religion. On the other side of the coin, what we used to call the cultural right, I, I divided into, into two kinds of categories. Um, the one I, I just described as, as the culturally righteous. Uh, they tended to people who had 
a clearer sense of basic principles, of uh, a, a clearer sense, you might say, or, or believe they have a clearer sense of, of right and wrong and good and bad and, and so on. And, and um, strove, you might say, for a, a certain um, moral, ethical, um, positive behavior pattern. But on that radical side, I began to describe what I call the conservative cultural wedge. And, and it, it was a kind of a wedge. It was a, a, a more radical, dogmatic, not just um, religiously, but culturally dogmatic um, uh, lifestyle shift that in, in many ways was driving a wedge, you might say, um, in society between liberals and conservatives and even in, among the, the conservative side, among the culturally righteous and the, and the culturally more extreme. And then finally, in the middle of all that were, were a group that I called the culturally passive. Um, and it wasn't so much that they were the, in the middle, but that they have uh, kind of become voiceless, um, retreating into traditions and institutions and so on. And to some extent, as polarization in America has grown, and the, and, the, and the voice of the radical left and the radical right has grown, it has kind of threatened and, and immobilized, you might say, that culturally passive, culturally middle. Uh, it's as if nowadays they're almost afraid to speak out because they're going to be attacked. You know, they're going to be criticized vocally and maybe even denigrated, you know, by one side or by the other side or by both sides together. And... Um, so th those kind of five categories, and then I did lifestyle research to try to identify trends, um, patterns that certain lifestyle uh, segments or lifestyle portraits, certain groups of people tended to be in one of those five different kinds of categories and then beginning to explore why in a non-judgmental way, but simply why you know, what drove them, what, what motivated them to, to move in those kind of cultural directions. And um, that's another story about talking about empathy and understanding the roots. But that's kind of what I was uh, building on from the work of pure demographics in the 90s. Because back then, really, we, you know, we, we, we made differentiations between age and gender and family status and so on. Um, but today we understand that even within categories like gender and age and race, there's tremendous diversity of, of attitude and behavior and opinion and religion, even within those groups. So, so those broad generalizations of the 90s were not really working well for any sector of society and certainly not for the church as we moved into the 21st century. Well, part of what... Um... I, I understand that that the benefit of of your uh, research uh, is not only kind of helping us get a portrait, get a get a picture of what's going on, but also have some sense of uh, what's coming down the road. Uh, as you talk about trends, uh, you know things that are that are going to be developing, uh, and you you talked, I guess, specifically about five trends that you saw, kind of a cumulative result of all of your research um and 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 it seems to be moving to the right <laughs> and all that but but yeah talk talk about that those kind of five trends that you um 
Yeah, and first, let me just quickly say that in terms of um, a trend to move to the right, um, uh, actually, I'm not sure I would generalize it that way. It often is, is, is described in that way or appears that way, but it's, I think it's much more complicated than that. Um, but let me back up a, a moment, uh, David, and, and, and comment based on my work just in the last year or so, and, and that's kind of even after Sideline Church. And I, I just, more and more what I'm doing now is helping uh, identify the four major demographic forces that are shaping America today and what that means in terms of daily living, what that means in terms of lifestyle. We hear a lot about globalization, and it's a trigger for a lot of you know reactions. But but really, uh, that's set a, set that aside for a moment. When you really look at what's happening in America, these are the four demographic forces, and they are urbanization, centralization, consolidation, and isolation. And so we see that urbanization is not only um, people moving toward the city. But now, and especially in these post-COVID uh, days, it's people exiting the city, urbanization moving out, you might say, following major transportation corridors. And, and so we see townhouses and, and new retail centers and even, even industries relocating into the country. And, and those people migrating out of the city may be looking for greater affordability and security and so on but bringing their urban attitudes and their urban assumptions and their ideas along with them. So urbanization is transforming uh, small towns and rural areas. Centralization is, is that trend in American society to centralize our healthcare, social services, and educational institutions in, in, a, in a central location. And so we see some small towns beginning to expand and become larger as, as that's where the medical services and the affordable housing and the social services and the educational opportunities are located, but they're being withdrawn, you might say, from rural areas. And that causes a kind of migration uh, of, of rural uh, families and households, particularly among seniors, um, into the, into the um, central uh, areas. And that too is changing the, the, um, the realities of society and of the church. For, for example, so many times what I see in consulting are formerly um, uh, vital uh, kind of small town, small city, downtown churches um, that, that uh, are now seeing a growing disconnect between the lifestyle representation that have long been their members and the lifestyle diversity, which is now moving in to their, to their city. And, and even as the downtowns in those areas can be declining economically um, as, as other institutions take it over, um, you see a lot of new faces, a lot of new people, and churches really struggling to reach and bless those people. Um, well, I noticed that, um, I mean, because um, one of my interviews with was Michael Hahn and uh, in his book, uh, one bread, one body. Mm -hmm. uh, he he was talking uh, about uh, the fact that that the same thing that happened with with white communities, you know, back in the '60s, and, and when white flight took on, you know, took place as integration began to happen, 
uh, in some ways is beginning to happen in ethnic, historically ethnic communities. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, I, that, I would really that, agree with that. You know, that that the, the historically uh, centered black church, uh, as, as their members uh, moved out, as you talked about, moved, moved in and became uh, commuters, uh, but the neighborhood uh, in which the church is located is now becoming another ethnicity. Uh, and, and so the church is finding itself uh, needing that tension pre between preserving uh, their own heritage and the importance of that heritage, while at the same time seeking to uh, minister to those that are living in the neighborhood. Yes, and um, out of 71 lifestyle segments currently defined, um, there, there are about a dozen, for example, that have high representation of, of African-Americans. And there are about another dozen that have high representation, say, of Hispanics of different kinds. But, but those, those lifestyle segments are also diverse. And, and we cannot assume that black churches or, or worship that draws black people will be the same. In fact, different African-American lifestyle segments now are, are gravitating to different kinds of worship or different kinds of churches or hospitality and, and Christian education and outreach and, and all of that. Uh, and that's part of the diversity that, that really is happening um, is breaking, you might say, our assumptions about the uniformity of ethnicity and race, our stereotyping, you might say, of ethnicity and race. And as we study this, we become much more empathic and aware of, of different needs, not just socially, but, but spiritually among different kinds of people. Well, you, you, you dealt with the first two, the urbanization and, and centralization. What's well, the, the other two um, follow. Um, one of them is isolation. And so we do see in rural areas, we, we have a greater sense of isolation. The social services are withdrawn. Educational sources are withdrawn. Uh, even churches are declining uh, and, and getting smaller and smaller and cannot sustain with critical mass their own clergy and so on. So we see a kind of isolation um, um, created a vacuum in, in pockets of, of rural areas. And the last is consolidation. And, and what I mean by that is both, both in, you might say, in the country and in the city, you begin to see a consolidation, a, a drawing in uh, uh, behind certain walls or boundaries of certain kinds of lifestyle segments. And out in the country, we see a, a consolidation, for example, of, of retiring more affluent boomers who are moving from the city. And it's not like they're creating walls, but they, they, they are kind of moving in and owning property in the country where it's cleaner and safer and has more recreational opportunities. And that's changing the whole dynamic of that area. And in the urban core, of course, as, as, as some people are moving out, others are left behind. And, and we see even an accelerating, there's always been that kind of ghettoization in many urban centers, but that's actually getting worse, I think, rather than better, because many of the poorest lifestyle segments um, are, are left behind. They cannot follow the flow of urbanization. Uh, they're losing many of the services they have to centralization, and, and they really are kind of isolated in certain neighborhoods. So those are the four 
major demographic forces that are shaping America, I think, but also um, uh, having a direct impact on shaping religious institutions. Well, in as a result of those kind of forces, um, you, let's go back to the um, discussion you said about personalization and the development of, of uh, private religion. Because you, you spend a good deal of time in uh, Sideline Church and all, uh, about that and uh, about the challenge that that creates. Uh, yes, and, and um, try to organize my thoughts. I think um, a key word in, in the demographic forces that I've been describing is the word mobility. And the word mobility and the reality of mobility uh, has been accelerating and accelerating and accelerating from the, from the 90s and on into the, the new millennium. And it's, and it's even accelerated faster in the post-COVID world. So when I talk about mobility, it's not just physical mobility as, as people are moving out from the city or relocating here or there. Um, the, the average residency uh, today that used to be in many towns, you know, 10, 15 years is now down to measured in months. People are relocating mobile for, for jobs, for family, for any number of reasons. But it's also a virtual mobility because of social media and the internet. And, and you might say that virtually our minds are mobile. We, we may be physically in the same house, but, but we are actually experiencing, migrating, exploring different cultures all over the world, really. And, and so that mobility what, what I'm, is, is one of the forces that's behind personal or personalized religion. That, um, that uh, people no longer can rely and to some degree no longer trust that peers or institutions uh, or traditions within a community will um, provide the kind of support personal support, spiritual guidance, uh, moral support, moral help, ethical help, and so on in their very mobile lives. That, that, that they're, these institutions are always behind the times, you might say. They're, they're always lagging behind. So personal religion is in part um, mobile people trying to kind of gather around themselves and their world, you might say, uh, a structure of meaning and purpose which um, is borrowed from, from a number of different sources, and then you might say refined out of their own egos and their own needs. And then it's um, shaken all together with that kind of rampant individualism for which America is, is so well known in the world. Uh, and, and, and then you see this kind of um, uh, distancing from the church and personalization. One last note, though, and I'll pause because I want you to take this conversation where you think it needs to go. Um, the flip side of personal religion is what I would say cultic religion. That personal religion becomes more and more competitive, you might say. I believe this, you believe that, and we argue together. I think this, you think that. You know, uh, these are my values, they should be your values, and if you don't have my values, I'm going to condemn you as, as wrong. So there's that, that kind of, the more personal, personal religion has multiplied, 
the more friction and the more conflict is created between individuals. Uh, and then we see, um, you might say, the more power struggles happen within culture and religion. And it's not surprising that while we see individualism and personalism on the one hand, we begin to see dogmatism and cultic religion emerge on the other. And, and this is a kind of religion which um, uh, tends to be very judgmental uh, and um, very dogmatic and kind of narrow-minded and, uh, and much more confrontational, you might say. A personal religion, uh, the best of personal religion, if I could say it that way, as it's expanding in America, is, is that it is very conversational. It, it, it is, you know, let's, we'll talk about spirituality and, and, and we're free to express ourselves however we want and, and, and learn from each other if we can. Um, but um, there's also that confrontational side that is emerging as individuals butt heads in terms of what I like and what you like, what I believe is true and what you believe is true. And, and so that's kind of a dual phenomenon, especially today in our polarized world, personal religion on the one hand, um, and, and, uh, and then a more dogmatic, more cultic kind of highly structured religion on the other. Well, you talked about um, the difference between, um, I guess, uh, personalization being the effort to control the process of life versus private religion being the process of trying to control the meaning of life. Well, uh, and this is related to uh, the dichotomy I was describing. I, I guess this is pretty, uh, this is a very simple uh, kind of distinction. But when I look at personal religion as it's burgeoning and taking so many forms in America, there are kind of two directions where it often goes. One direction is personal religion is about um, me and my ego trying to take control of the process of life, of what's happening in life. And, and there's a certain supernatural quality that can come out of it where I, I try to manipulate God or I try to... Um, control uh, destiny, whether I, I'm going to try to control life so that I live forever or whether I to control life so I'm happy. But it, it really is about uh, taking control and managing my life. But there's another side around personal religion, which is more, it's not about controlling, you might say, the process of living, but it is more about exploring the, the meaning of life in various layers and dimensions. And um, that's a, a kind of a, a different kind of personal religion. And um, it, while the one, while the former can become more confrontational, the, the, the latter becomes more conversational. But, but either way, David, um, especially in America with its sense of individualism, um, we're seeing religion, um, uh, as we've noted institutionally and classically and traditionally, is fragmenting, is, 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 uh, um, is coming apart, you might say. And in its place is this effort of individuals, mobile individuals, to, um, uh, you might say, to customize their own sense of the sacred, uh, of sacred space, of sacred time, of sacred people. And a lot of that is, um, it tends, does tend to be rather egocentric. It is 
it, it is shaping God around my my own self and my own expectations. And, and to that extent, it, it, it is a challenge to traditional Christianity, you might say, in all of its forms, because traditionally, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, um, religion is not about you. It's not about, it's not shaped around your ego. Uh, it is in fact intended to help you surrender your ego, you might say, to the higher power or to a deeper and greater meaning and purpose in life. So there's this, there's a real tension between uh, religion as we've classically or traditionally understood it and what's happening in the emerging personal religion. Well, you, you also talked about um, it becomes more difficult to uh, hold membership, even even in, you know in, in internally to a church, uh, because of the the personalization, uh, hold accountability. Uh, yeah, it's interesting when we read um, when I read research done by MissionInsight.com, actually um, tracking the top reasons for non-participation in the church. What are the top reasons in America why people don't participate in the church? And alongside that, the top reasons why people draw out of the church or distance themselves from the church. And, and at the top of the list are always basically the same three things. The, the major reasons for non-participation in the church are, and, and they vary in priority, but these are the three things. The church is seen as too judgmental. And that's 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 just that's that's uh, uh, against both liberal and conservative churches, no matter where you are. The church is still generally seen as judgmental of, of a people. Uh, at the second is uh, the church is too greedy, and church institutions uh, want your money. And uh, and again, there's that kind of distrust of the integrity of the church. And the third reason, which I think is one of the most revealing and challenging, is People withdraw or don't participate in the church because they don't trust the leaders. The, 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 the spiritual leadership, the clergy, are less and less credible, you might say. And, um, and you know, so they gravitate to other kinds of spiritual leaders who, um, you might say, uh, are, um, uh, are better able to empathize with their own lifestyles and so on. But, but um, personal religion in, and, and, the, and the departure from the church, those three factors are huge in terms of church decline and the emergence of personal religion and greater and spirituality in general. Well, your church, I mean, your, your books uh, aren't for the purpose of being negative. Uh, they, they are for the purpose of, of being positive and helping us to say, once we understand, that gives us opportunities. And, um, uh, you know, what the church can do, what the church should do, is able to do. Um, and yeah. you, you talked about that not all churches are sidelined, that there, there are some that are, that are you know, uh, being adaptive and exploring. But I, I, I gathered from, uh, I guess, particularly your book, See, No, Serve, um, that for you uh, – the reason the church matters is that it can, in fact, have an impact uh, on culture, that its presence changes culture. 
going to talk about that. And, and let me start by kind of going deeper. Um, the influence of the church on culture for me today, the power of the church, you might say, is not, is not primarily in its ideological or its theological pronouncements. Um, but it is on its ability to generate empathy and, um, re and you might say, and reveal incarnation. So what I mean is that the real power of the church, and I think those churches that are really growing cross-culturally, I mean, that are really growing um, in the midst of diversity, um, go, go beyond just ideological or, or theological issues, and they generate empathy. They, they generate a, a really heartfelt, heart, I call it heartburst energy for the life and the lifestyle of the diverse people around them. Their heart breaks for them. They, they understand their needs, their challenges, and in particular, the deep anxieties that drive their quest for God, like existential anxieties. But, but that's the first thing churches do, is, is they, they, they have the power to be empathic and to build empathy between lifestyle segments. Churches are by nature reconciling agents in society. And, uh, and that, is, that is because of the nature of Christ. Um, and, and they not only help empathize with the anxieties and the diverse needs of people, but they also recognize that different kinds of people need to experience Jesus Christ or the incarnation of God in different ways. I mean, even when we read the Gospels, we see that different people came to Jesus for different reasons. Some people came for healing. Some people came for guidance. Some people came for justice, etc. And in the same way, different needs drive the quest for God and religion in different lifestyle segments. And, and the church is able, or the church can be able, to reveal Jesus Christ, you might say, in, in multiple ways, multiple relevant ways that can bless and, and help other people. Uh, and then the last thing I'll mention about, about, in a general way, about why churches are so important in society, there's empathy, there's incarnation. But um, thirdly, um, churches are, are, are probably um, the institutions uh, the, uh, today which are best able to generate courage and hope. It used to be, you know, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, we, you know, churches were all about love. You know, we, we love each other. We're going to make friends and so on. Um, but truthfully today, love is not the deepest need of emerging generations. Uh, hope and courage are the, are the bigger need. They can get love and they can build relationships in a lot of ways, social media. and, and, and but, but the church is better poised to give them the one thing they, they really can't get from any other uh, educational institution or, or healthcare institution or therapeutic technique or whatever. And, and that is a, a good reason to hope for tomorrow and the courage to face today. And it may not offer all the answers, but it offers the hope and the courage. And, and in those three ways, I think the church, um, if it gets back, you might say, to its real core, uh, is vital to the future uh, of America. Well, in addition to love, you talked about uh, the capability of impacting the culture through power and justice. Um, and does that, how does that play in with the concept of hope? 
Uh, I'm guessing that the idea of hope is the sense of justice. Yes, it is. Um, that's included. Um, you might say that there's a, uh, a trinity of factors, of social factors that, that, sh that um, um, influence culture this way and that over time. Love, power, and justice. And, and they're interrelated and they're different and, and sometimes one and sometimes the other is most relevant in a particular situation among a particular people. But, but the church, uh, and, and I would broaden this out to other religious institutions and, and organizations also. And I think this is true of, of, uh, of the mosque and the synagogue as well. But uh, religious organizations like the church, um, they have historically always kind of been at the epicenter of this balancing act between love, power, and justice. And um, they have always been a source or a, a power, a, an influence to temper, you might say, society, uh, if it goes to one extreme or to the other extreme and, and so on. And, and the church's ability to, to um, uh, recognize that tension and kind of maintain that balance, you might say, again, is really uh, critical uh, to, you might say, to civilization, to civil, civil discourse and, 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 uh, and peace and, and socialization today. Um, you speak of the, that empathy is the, the, the key to change, uh, but that the goal is blessing. Yeah. Uh, and I say that um, and this is partly in reaction to what was long typical of the church growth movement. Um, uh, behind all the different words and rhetoric, a lot of church growth has really been a, about attracting people. It's been about attracting them, convincing them, drawing in uh, um, to uh, a certain dogmatic formula or, or an institutional membership or some sort of agreement uh, ideologically, but it's really about kind of attracting people and unifying them and organizing them into uh, uh, an institution. And uh, today, what's what I think is emerging in, 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 in growing and thriving churches is that they've turned that around. It really isn't about attracting more members or attracting more people that agree with you. It's really about blessing other people. It's about helping them experience Christ in the way they need to experience Christ. It's about improving their quality of life. It's about deepening their spiritual lives. It's about um, uh, helping them find uh, new courage and hope and so on. And so it's, it really is kind of backwards. And I, and I think these churches have found that the more you forget yourself and live for the sake of the other, the more ironically your own church grows be because people who are blessed want to go and kind of be with those who have been a blessing to them and join them in their effort. Um, but if it, it's kind of like Jesus said, you forget yourself in order to be a blessing to other people. And, and it is as churches kind of stop trying to survive and stop trying to grow institutionally and increase their numbers and their budgets and, and adherencies and so on, but concentrate instead on blessing other people uh, and doing that in different ways, 
practically and spiritually. Um, that to me, that again, that gets back to the real core of the gospel, and and it's really what's um, the powerhouse in terms of making churches thrive today. One of the um, responses that you have to personal religion uh, is the importance of Paul Tillich, uh, how you uh, drew him into this conversation and uh, how that plays uh, into being a guide for the church. Um, and, and my understanding is you connected it with uh, the idea that personal religion and trying to control meaning in life uh, seeks to become its, its own ground of being. Um, so you have a new book related to that also, uh, why Paul Tillich by now? Uh, yes, I do. Um, it's, it's written for a more academic uh, audience than professional audience undergraduates and graduate students alike. Um, Paul Tillich, um, uh, many will recognize the name in some way or other as a major theologian um, uh, who died in 1965. Um, and I only, I only knew him through uh, video, you might say, when he would be televised, even as a, a young teenager, I was intrigued. Um, but Paul Tillich has been, a, you might say, a mentor to me. That's the that his work is is what I did my uh, doctoral research and doctoral uh, work on, and um, I, I find his thought and work has remained influential uh, all the way into the 21st century in all different sectors. And the reason it has remained influential. Um, uh, is because of the richness, you might say, of his ideas. And, and let me just name three, if I can. Um, and, and those people who know me know how influenced I am, you might say, by this, by these ideas and, and by and Tillich's view of the world. But the three ideas are um, uh, correlation, existentialism, and spiritual presence. Um, correlation. Uh, is, is a fairly complicated term, but basically it, it, is, it is seeking the correlations between existential questions and incarnational answers. It, 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 is, it is, is that correlation between um, the, what emerges from human need and, and search and, and then what is revealed by God in terms of hope and, uh, and you might say, and acceptance. And uh, that correlation is exactly what I saw when I first realized when I first was exposed to lifestyle segment research, because it was it was looking at behavior patterns and and looking at uh, religious patterns and how they correlated together. Existentialism. Um, uh, Paul Tillich, um, very influential not just in philosophy but in psychotherapy today, and many psychotherapeutic categories. Uh, are, are, are borrowed or, or, or developed or used in concert with Tillich's thought. And, and he developed um, a set of uh, existential anxieties, you know, deep, profound, abiding uh, anxieties ab about life that dominate, you might say, the thought and behavior and habits of, of different kinds of people. Um, and um, uh, he defined uh, six anxieties. I, I've now defined eight different anxieties um, you know, the anxieties of uh, emptiness and meaninglessness, 
the anxieties of uh, guilt and shame, the anxieties of uh, um, fate and death, uh, the anxieties of estrangement and displacement. Um, and what I, what I see is how different lifestyle segments are kind of dominated by one or two of these anxieties. And, and that really kind of shapes the kinds of spiritual leaders they seek out and the, and the kind of uh, spiritual quest that they embark on. So that kind of existentialism um, com combined with his sense of incarnation is important. And the last is that his concept of spiritual presence. Um, Tillich, especially later in life, um, began to focus more and more on the third person of the Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and this focus, you might say, on the Holy Spirit and, and um, beginning to, to develop a theology based on spiritual presence and the movement of the Spirit, you might say, uh, not just in nature, but in culture. That, that, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit is moving and, and moving in and out and in and through culture, just as the spirit, you might say, is kind of visible and, uh, and revealed in nature or, or, or in um, intellect and thought and, and so on. And, and it is that sense of kind of, you know, spiritual presence that um, I think has been exciting uh, to many uh, Christians. And I'm now speaking of Catholics and Orthodox, and mainstream Protestants, and Evangelical Protestants, all have, have begun to uh, kind of re-engage um, this sense of spiritual presence. I'm not saying that Christology and, and the centrality of Christ is not important, but in terms of our culture today and where we're moving in America today, uh, an elaboration of, of the Holy Spirit and spiritual presence is becoming more and more relevant, you might say, uh, to more and more people. And so those three things, I mean, there, there are other things, so many other things around his thought that has been uh, helpful to me. But, but in terms of the theology of culture and understanding society uh, today, um, his correlation theory, his existential roots, and his sense of spiritual presence uh, are probably some of the most significant things. Well, I am thankful uh, for who you are, for all that you have done, uh, for the wonderful resources. Uh, they are immensely helpful. I have found them personally in my own ministry, uh, exceptionally insightful and helpful. Uh, and so I thank you for what you've talked about today. Uh, it gives us a, a strong sense of understanding. It gives us a strong sense of hope. So thank you, Tom, for being with me. Thank you, David. I appreciate your invitation, and I thank everybody who who uh, listens with uh, openness and uh, and no doubt with critique, because uh, that's fine too. Um, I, I tend to be about conversation, not, not confrontation. Well, you've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left 
and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace. May the words from my mouth.